Hi, welcome to We Are The Weirdos Auntie G, a podcast by Weirdo Zine and Collective. My name is Naz Turabani and I'm the founder and editor of Weirdo Zine, and I have the pleasure of hosting this episode. Weirdo exists to document and celebrate the experiences, perspectives and contributions of South Asian people in alternative subcultures around the world. We do this through our print zine, articles on our website, events, and by sharing people's stories on this podcast. In each episode of We Are The Weirdos Auntie G, we interview a South Asian creative to find out about their journey in the alternative scene and their career to date. Today's guest is Anjali Bhatia. Anjali is a solo artist and the former frontwoman of riot girl band Voodoo Queens. Voodoo Queens formed in North London in 1992 and disbanded in 99, although their final release was in 95. Voodoo Queens are one of the few bands fronted by a South Asian woman at the time, and they left their mark on the riot girl scene from their very first gig. In this interview, Anjali and I chat about Voodoo Queens, her music as a solo artist, and her advice for new musicians. Hi, Anjali. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Yes, not bad. Enjoying the, the last um, bits of summer, the Indian summer. It's been it's been very, very toasty recently. Um, I don't know when people will be listening to this, but right now it's September and it's about 31 degrees outside. And it's about 40 degrees in my flat as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which isn't that pleasant when you've got lots of equipment on too. <laughs> Oh yeah, my my laptop's already sort of making loads of noise, so that's fun. Are you cooking eggs on it now? <laughs> I could I could be. <laughs> it probably they probably would cook. So thank you so much for coming to chat with us on the podcast. So we're gonna talk about your music and sort of your background in the Riot Girl scene as well. So before we get on to all of that, can you tell me a little bit about the music scenes you were part of in the 90s? The 90s were um, such an exciting time. It was a fantastic era to be part of the scene, especially in London. There were a lot of musicians and artists living in squats and housing co-ops. And this kind of created a really interesting, um, homogenized creative community where everyone seemed to be like an art student or a musician. And there was always someone to start a band with or do do an artistic project with. And, you know, we were kind of like living in these Edwardian and Victorian semi-dilapidated houses because a lot of parts of London were not gentrified back then. And, you know, we had the space in our houses to kind of like, you know, indulge ourselves with like an art room, a music room, um, you know, to have parties and raves, you know. So it was a really exciting time to be a creative person. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And what, what kind of music were you listening to at the time or like gigs that you were going to then? Oh, my God. Well, you know, we used to just there was so much going on at the time and. You know, we used to go and see bands like Stereo Lab or, you know, like other bands would come over from the States like Bratmobile. And, you know, uh, there, there was just always so many interesting bands and gigs. And, you know, it was a time where, um, you know, you if you, if there was a buzz about a band, you had to like go and see them. You couldn't just listen to them on the Internet or do a Shazam or whatever. And, you know, I used to live in, in Islington and up and down Upper Street, there was like endless music venues, really interesting pubs and clubs. And, 
you know, it was just a, a great time. And that's why I think there were a lot of scenes that were created because you had to physically go and see these bands. And it was just like a, a really fabulous time. I love that. I can imagine people really showed up for bands a lot more back then as well. Now you can just sort of listen to a band on Spotify or something um, and not necessarily have to sort of go and see them live to experience it. Now with sort of music just at your fin fingertips, perhaps maybe that's impacted some of the those scenes sort of forming and, and not just forming, but thriving as well, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe maybe there are thriving scenes, but, um, you know, I don't feel I'm really a part of that. You know, maybe I'm, I'm just a little bit too long in the tooth right now, um, <laughs> trying to protect my ears from like getting like, you know, um, endless amounts of ringing tinnitus. So, but um, yeah, no, it was just I'm sure there's exciting things still happening, but it was it was just a great time then. You know, you had to physically go turn up to a gig. And you met really interesting people, you know, like kindred spirits. So in terms of your journey into making music, not just going to gigs, when did you start playing music and writing your own songs? My dad actually bought me and my sister a guitar when I was about 10 years old. He came back from work one evening and he bought us this acoustic guitar and me and my sister were like really excited and we took it out of the case. We bashed around with it for a while and, you know, pretended we were like in Blondie or Girls School or whatever <laughs> the bands we were listening to at the time. And then it kind of got relegated into the loft. And then when I was about 12 years old in secondary school, I decided I wanted to start playing guitar so I started to take some guitar lessons and you know it was it was fantastic I think that's when my music taste really formulated because I was like playing like some jazz standards like Cole Porter and um, the girl from Ipanema and play Misty for me and you know alongside all the traditional songs like Green Sleeves and the Streets of London I, I started to get into easy listening at quite a young age and then I was also writing, I started to write my own songs, you know, I learned a few chords and I was like writing silly songs about, probably about boys I fancied at school that had no interest in me, story of my life. And then I got into listening to John Peel, like a lot of people at the time did. And that really was a, an ear opener, forget about an eye opener, because, you know, it just introduced you into this kind of like vortex of unusual, quirky music. You know, one minute you'd be listening to like Maximum Joy, the next minute he'd be playing Napalm Death, you know, and it was just a, um, a really great way of discovering interesting music. When you got your first guitar, did you ask your dad for it? Did you just, he just randomly brought it home? Well, he used to work down in Rathbone Place, just off Tottenham Court Road, and um, he used to work in the main post office, the, the sorting office, and there was a a music shop I think it's still there I can't remember what it's called but on his way home he would pass this music shop on uh, um, Rathbone Place and he said he used to look in the window every day at these guitars and I think he said one day there was a sale and he was like you know I'm gonna buy this guitar for, for the girls and that's what he did you know so no we didn't ask for the guitar he just like bought us the guitar and so you know it was like every time he used to complain about like like the music that I was playing I don't think he was quite a fan of voodoo queens maybe more of my <laughs> solo career stuff you know I used to sort of blame him and say well you're the one that bought me the guitar so <laughs> I love that it's but... it's totally his fault you also mentioned John Peel as well so voodoo queens did a few 
sessions with John Peel, which is amazing. You went from listening to his shows and being really inspired by them to then going to to do a live session or a few with him. So let's talk a bit about Voodoo Queens now. What's the story behind the formation of Voodoo Queens? What was that journey like for you being in that band? Well, basically, I was already in a band. I'd been in a few bands and I was in a band and I was playing drums and singing at the same time, which I found rather challenging. And I felt as though I wanted to go back to my natural home, my native home of playing the guitar and singing. And so I just decided to like form a band and um, it was a lot to do with the timing. The timing seemed right. And um, my sister joined the band. She was on the keyboards and then you know, I got my childhood friend and Jula to join the band. We basically just threw a bass guitar at her and said, play. And she was absolutely fantastic. She was a real natural and she looked so great on stage as well. And um, and then we had um, a drummer called Sunny, but she went off to do another project. And we were gifted with Steffi, who was like, you know, the princess of the voodoo beats until the bitter end, you know, until the voodoo queens kind of like dissipated. And then we had another friend, Ella, uh, Ella Guru, who's an artist. She came and joined in as second guitarist. And, um, you know, we, we basically, we only had like three songs and we were asked to support Corner Shop at the Bull and Gate in Kentish Town. So we were like, OK, we'll do it. And um, um, there weren't many people in the audience. And we noticed that John Peel was in the audience. And we were like, oh, my God, we were already nervous and excited and freaking out. And um, so we did played the gig. And then Gary from Ouija Records, who got us the gig, he basically ran up after we played and said, look, you know, John Peel really loved your performance, but he's too embarrassed and shy to come and talk to you. So he introduced us to, to John Peel and we chatted to him and... You know, John Peel basically said that it it was like, you know, it, it, he was so excited by the gig. It reminded him of the first time he, he saw the slits. And for us, that was like the zenith of all compliments. And he offered us a Peel session on the spot. And we were like, well, we've only got three songs. And he was like, write another one. So, <laughs> so that's what we did. And basically, you know, one minute we were like pra rehearsing, practicing in this dingy, squalid, damp rehearsal room in a squat in Islington half of us learning how to play the instruments and then the next minute we were like you know recording in in these plush um, studios in Maida Vale that had seen luminaries like you know I don't know Pink Floyd Led Zeppelin and the Beatles had recorded in there and it was just like completely crazy and it was very much pinch 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 moments I mean, that's in that's incredible going from just having three songs to going to Maida Vale to record a live session with the John Peel, who was too shy to come and speak to you guys, <laughs> which is so funny. Um, can I ask how how big were Corner Shop at the time? I mean, that's a pretty cool gig to get as well, right? Getting to support them. Well, that was I mean, I think, you know, it was kind of like uh, a bit. Um, in the sort of embryonic stages they were getting really good press and um, you know I, I don't think they'd had their they hadn't had the big hit yet but they were just starting out as well and like us and um, you know and then it kind of happened really quickly for them they they had a really great remix and um, you know we we were just kind of all like uh, in this scene and it was really quite exciting to be part of a movement Absolutely. 
Um, so Voodoo Queens actually only lasted, I, I want to say around three years. I think, um, I think the first single maybe was released in 92, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think you, you remember better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you don't remember. <laughs> I think um, so. Let's say it was I, 92 I was then. A, yeah, let's say, let's, yeah, let's kind of shape on 92. I remember I was at art college. I was at Goldsmiths doing my, my textile degree, design, uh, textile design degree. So I think it was around 92, yeah. I mean, it's quite a big deal as a sort of all women band. I mean, it's annoying that that's a big deal, but it was a big deal. An all women band um, and also women of colour fronted by you as well. And there weren't that many other sort of South Asian women fronted bands at the time. Um, I think the only one that I can remember around the same time would be Sonia Madden from Echo Belly. Did it feel like a big deal at the time, sort of being in a sort of all girl group, for lack of a better term? Well, you know, it kind of didn't because I think like um, as an Asian woman at the time, I suddenly had like this kind of sense of belonging, like being part of this scene. You felt as though you were like, again, with kindred spirits, with like the oddballs, the misfits, you know, maybe those who were bullied at school or, you know, and it felt like we were outsiders, but we'd all sort of convened together and um, you felt like you could express yourself and no one would really judge you. You know, like I said, it was great to be part of this kind of movement. I mean, we were sometimes compared to Corner Shop, probably because they were like the only other Asian band around. And it was probably more annoying for them than us because they were like slightly more professional than us. But, you know, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a big deal. It was great to be part of it felt like a monumental movement at the time, you know. We didn't even think that deeply about it, but it was just, like, great fun. I mean, yeah, the band's definitely still has an impact today in terms of when people discover it. I've seen lots of people online sort of chatting about seeing Voodoo Queens, like, the videos that are on YouTube and being really inspired to start their own bands or people not believing that, you know, South Asian women fronted a band, a punk band like this back in the day. You know, it's it's so cool um, and has gone on to inspire people. So, yeah, I, I was so excited when, when I discovered Voodoo Queens a few years ago. Can you tell me what are some of your um, favourite memories of being in the band? Do you have any interesting stories to tell um, that you're allowed to tell? <laughs> probably many that ha that have to sort of like go into hiding um <laughs> and will never be re never be surfaced resurfaced but um you know I just think it it, it was just a, a whirlwind it didn't last for a long time but it was just really great and you know when we did our peel session we ended up setting um a speaker alight I don't know how we did that but maybe you know maybe the guitars were too loud or something but we um yeah, um, a speaker just like went up in flames and we had to, oh my God. they had to, this was in Maidervale Studios and they had to call Fire Brigade and, you know, I mean, so it, it was just like one of those moments that's like, wow, this is just like insane, everything that's happening and um, yeah, so we were like recording this, this session and then like the Fire Brigade turned up, about like 10 firemen turned up and tried to put it out and yeah, it was great, you know, we were like, you know, like really excited that we'd blown up a speaker <laughs> luckily we didn't have to pay for it <laughs> yeah 
So in the band, so you mentioned that your sister was in the band with you as well. When I read that, I thought it was really interesting because I used to be in a band and my sister played drums in the band. Um, what was that like working with your sister in, in Voodoo Queens? <laughs> well, it was it was good fun. Obviously, you know, siblings have their moments, don't they? But, you know, it was it, it was really great to have the support, you know, of like obviously your sister's got your best interest at heart and it just felt like a gang it felt really cool like we were like you know back when we were like 10 years old and we would got that guitar out and pretended we were in girls school or blondie or whatever it just felt like that all over again it was fantastic my sister and I definitely clashed a few times so um <laughs> but supporting each other at the same time so yeah I get that so in terms of sort of where voodoo queens sort of sat within the overall guitar music scene at the time. It was sort of seen as part of the Riot Girl scene. And I guess in part due to releasing songs like Supermodel Superficial, which is the theme tune we've chosen for this podcast. Thank you for letting us use it. <laughs> was it intentional to sort of go down the sort of Riot Girl route or was it just sort of more press that was sort of pushing that narrative basically again it just felt like there was all these bands that were kind of like quite similar and had like a similar outlook and kind of a manifesto um you know that that we kind of like were uh, making music at the same time and it, it was yeah it, it was kind of good in a way to be part of that scene and yeah we were thrown into this whole kind of riot girl circus press um, scene but like I said it wasn't really a bad thing because it felt like we were part of a movement and there was always a great band to be like you know on the same bill with and so um, I think it, it gave us some opportunities as well. Do you remember any of the bands that you got to that you got to play with at the time? Oh my god yeah we played with um... <laughs> putting you on the spot. <laughs> Yes, yes. Now I have to get to, to dust off my memory now. Uh, well, we did play with like, um, you know, other bands that were on Too Pure as well at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And we played with, we oh, we played with The Fall. That was amazing. We played with The Cramps. Um, we supported wow. The Cramps and it was so great supporting The Fall because we were like really big fans of theirs and you know so we we really you know we played at ready and I can't remember the lineup but we just played with so many great bands we were like really lucky moving on then from from voodoo queens a little bit how how did it sort of all come to an end you know I think as an artist uh, if you're a musician a designer any kind of creative person you need to evolve you need to stay fresh and if especially if you've got ideas and I always had ideas and I kind of got a bit tired of being in, in like the band format I felt like I was getting more into kind of electronic music and there was some really exciting scenes happening and you know I was like going to the the blue note a lot which was a fantastic um like venue club in Shoreditch and Old Street and you know I was basically there eight nights a week because there was so much interesting music and interesting DJs playing like from like the dusted night where you get to hear a lot of Mo Wax tunes and then metal heads which was just mind-blowing and then Anuka as well where you there was like this new kind of 
fusion with like Indian music and kind of dance music and it, it just felt like something that hadn't really happened previously and um, um, so I just sort of felt like I wanted to to kind of you know um, evolve as an artist. Did you say eight days a week? I thought I heard you say eight days a week. <laughs> it felt like that. It probably felt saying, like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I know you started getting into more sort of electronic music and and sort of um, more, more on the pop side as well. So can you tell me a bit about sort of the, the beginning journey in terms of trying out to make this new kind of music? How, how did you get into it? What was the first sort of piece of kit that you started working with and what some of those early songs sounded like and what inspired you to write them well you know it was very challenging to kind of go from playing a guitar to suddenly saying oh you know daddy I want a sampler or whatever <laughs> you know um not that my dad bought me a sampler I bought it myself um but um it, it was quite difficult in the, initially to learn the technology the technical side of everything um but i i went on a, a music technology course so that really helped me at islington music workshop and um you know it was i had an atari and i'm, I'm still so into you know i wish i could use the atari today but obviously that it we've evolved so much with um um, musical equipment and software and everything but it was you know it took time to learn the ropes but it gave you so much freedom and that was what was the most important thing especially I always had ideas of like wanting to layer up sounds and you know use synthesizers and stuff so yeah it was it was a, a, a really good direction for me to go into. Definitely I feel like synthesizers are becoming a lot more popular and it does often feel sort of at the beginning when you're first trying to get into it that there's so much to learn and it feels impossible but it sounds like you eventually sort of muddled your way through and figured it all out and then created some really beautiful music as part of your solo project. And now you're sort of working on, on newer music and I know you're in the studio as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on and sort of maybe some of the inspiration behind that as well? Um, well, I'm kind of halfway through um, a new album, which I'm really excited about. Um, I'm not going to give myself, I'm not going to say I've got a deadline because, you know, these creative projects have a life and a mind uh, and a spirit of their own so when it's finished it's finished but um I've got a lot of songs and I feel like I'm at kind of a um a creative zenith which is a really good thing so um yeah and I'm not using samples so everything is um kind of like um created live or I'm playing a lot of guitar again and um it's quite experimental so yeah it's really exciting and I can't wait to finish it <laughs> and get my mental health back on track <laughs> you pour so much into into creating music and I and I think you're right in saying to like to not give yourself a deadline necessarily or sort of have a, a sort of loose deadline in mind to keep you motivated but to not sort of have this fixed deadline that sort of stresses you out especially when you say that sort of you know getting your mental health on track and things like that. well my sanity my sanity your sanity yeah <laughs> I mean, well, it sounds a bit too serious. <laughs> wow. Um, when the album is ready and you'll be playing it live, hopefully, will you be playing with a band or will you be on your own or what, what will that look like? 
be great to be with a band, you know, yeah, I, I think that would be like wonderful to have a live band. Um, I think there's a couple of tracks where I'm just doing a few acoustic things on my own, but mostly it's kind of like, you know, live musicians. So it'd be great to be in to play with a band. And in terms of the sound, I know you said that you're, it's sort of a bit more experimental. What kind of sort of sounds can we expect? Oh, God, he just changed overnight. Or or rather, it could just change. (laughs) Or what kind of... It's it's so interesting because I feel like today more than ever, it's it's much more challenging to sort of fit music into certain genres. I feel a lot more artists are sort of genreless or don't quite know where to place their music. I, I guess I'm really interested to know where you would place the music that you're currently working on. Um, I would say it's genreless. <laughs> that's, that's cheating. That's not a genre. <laughs> that's I. You know, I will. I will. I will. No, I'm sticking that. with that. One. Okay. <laughs> As part of this podcast, you know, we're speaking to people who have all sorts of experiences and backgrounds. Um, as people who've worked in the music industry. Do you have any advice for people looking to get into a career um, as a musician? Oh, gosh, there's... Well, after being in, in the, the creative world industry for a good few decades, I guess I should whisper that. Um, and, you know, there's, there are a lot of ups and there are plentiful downs, but you need to, to be made of tough stuff. And I would say um an important piece of advice is to be true to yourself don't follow any trends because trends are transient and you need to think about being timeless and you know even if it means just wrapping yourself in a cocoon and cutting yourself off from the outside world just you know be true to yourself if you have any kind of songwriting ability work on that you know work on your songwriting and work on trying to be a producer work on trying to be self-reliant you know I always kind of feel like it must be really difficult for a vocalist who has to rely on someone to uh, you know write a song for them then a production team to come to them and take them into a studio it's like a very convoluted stressful process so I would say it's really important to be self-reliant and um, you know if you can try and learn an instrument you don't have to be like um, session musician standard just um, a few chords here and there is absolutely fine Um, and also you know if you can't afford to get a state-of-the-art laptop and the software and the plugins use GarageBand GarageBand is I don't don't want to plug anything here but I must admit GarageBand is absolutely brilliant and when I hadn't had my new setup set up I used GarageBand. A lot of the demos that I used, uh, that I made on GarageBand, I've carried some of those sounds over to the final versions of my songs that I'm using on Logic Pro X. So I would say, you know, just try and be as um, self-reliant as you can, basically. And also it's really good if you have a good friend who's an engineer (laughs) that you can call up and say, Dave, I've plugged this in. It's not working. What's going on? And then they say something like, have you switched it on? And you're like, oh, yes, sorry, I forgot about that. You know, these moments happen. And, um, you know, I found that I found that engineers have like uh, have been some of the most patient, capable people that I've 
worked with in studios and whatever so it's always good to have like an extra friend who's a bit techie and you know that you can ring up in a moment of crisis <laughs> I think that's some really really brilliant advice there's definitely a, a lot a lot of help out there actually even if you don't have an engineer friend um, <laughs> no you don't need loads an of <laughs> you don't need, it's very <laughs> Thank handy you, Dave. though <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but there's like today there's so many YouTube videos out there right that can that can help you through um, troubleshooting even things like GarageBand and, and Logic um, and it's great to have access to, to all that information at your fingertips basically oh god um, yeah I mean I, I'm constantly on YouTube and, and what have you mm -hmm. like trying to troubleshoot and it's absolutely amazing because like back in the day you just you know you were stuck and so yeah I would definitely say that you know utilize those brilliant like um, engineers or whatever that create their own like um, YouTube videos and they're really helpful absolutely um, well, thank you so much, Anjali, for, for coming onto the podcast and, and speaking with us. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and I can't wait to see you play live with and, and hear new music. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to We Are The Weirdos, Auntie G, a podcast by Weirdo Zine and Collective. Weirdo is a volunteer-run project that was created to document and celebrate the experiences, perspectives and contributions of South Asian people in alternative subcultures across the diaspora and Indian subcontinent. If you want to find out more about us, join our collective or support our work, visit our website weirdozine.com and follow us on Instagram at weirdo.zine.